This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to another episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. And today I have the pleasure of being on the road virtually with John Blazon, Master Sommelier. Now, John's a pretty impressive guy. He's a 37-year veteran with the hospitality beverage industry. But more importantly, John was the 59th Master Somme for the American chapter when he earned his Master Sommelier designation in the fall of 2004, when he actually went to London, England to pass the exam. Today, there are only 164 Master Sommeliers in the United States and only 255 worldwide. So it is a great pleasure to welcome John to the podcast. John, thank you so much for joining me. I know we're doing this virtually and across the country, but I am very excited to have you here with me today. Scott, it's great to be with you. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, this is amazing. So again, in the world of self-isolation and in the digital age, it's great that we're able to do this. And I should probably mention that I'm in a makeshift studio in my own closet. And John, looks like you're kind of in your <laughs> library where you are. Wonderful. So John, I know that you kind of started off in DC. We had this conversation. I, uh, you started your uh, career right down the road from where I was bartending back in the 80s, which is kind of funny. I'm surprised we never, well, maybe we did run into each other and I just didn't know it back then. Uh, I had more hair. So tell me, how did you get started in this industry? Yeah, Scott, you know, it's, it just seems like yesterday, but uh, time has flown. Uh, You know, I, I always wanted, I always enjoyed cooking. You know, I I went to the University of Massachusetts hotel restaurant program and graduated and uh, found myself I enrolled with the Dunphy Hotel Group back in the early 80s. Of course, I'm dating myself here, but my first job was an assistant executive steward. That just sounded like a glorious title, assistant executive steward, until I found out what the nuts and bolts of that job really was. And I was working in Atlanta, and uh, it was a, a stepping stone for me to really learn the back of the house. And uh, from Atlanta, I progressed up to and through different roles in uh, Virginia Beach and Baltimore. And then finally found myself in Washington, where everything came together for me, where I was now in the front of the house after learning and respecting the craft from the culinary programs. I found that uh, working in the front gave me a, uh, a chance to, to learn about wine. And we were putting together quite a wine program back then. Uh, you know, we're talking mid-80s here, and, and this is where I got bitten by the bug. Uh, we, we built an all-American wine list at the time when it was really a French town. At that point, you know, we saw an opportunity to reach out to all the winemakers and owners in California, the California Wine Institute, and I said, I wrote my personal notice and please stay at my hotel, which was the Park Terrace Hotel on 15th and Rhode Island. Yeah. Let's stay at my hotel, and here's a special uh, winemaker rack rate. I think it was $95 back in the day. <laughs> a winemaker rack rate? Exactly. And I, you know, I, I, Please tell I me you have, made that up. That's, no, it was, you know, we had a PR firm, and, and it was really kind of endearing to, to think about it that way. We, we were fairly progressive, and Phyllis Richmond wrote a nice article on us, and we were adorned in the Wine Spectator full page, and we got our best reward of excellence. And I'm having lunch and dinner with all the winemakers as I travel through town. So early on, I developed relationships. I'm proud to say that those relationships still carry forward even today. And then so that's where it all started. 
And then from there, where did, from Washington, D.C., where did you jump into? Well, from there, I, I stayed in, in the Commonwealth of Virginia and uh, opened a, a country club in Williamsburg called Ford's Colony, where I kind of established uh, another big wine program there for a semi-private <clears throat> country club. Built a, a wine tasting tasters guild, uh, another best award of excellence, and we eventually got a five diamond triple uh, A uh, dining rating. And then that was for a few years. And then Walt Disney World called. It was just kind of, out of nowhere. Uh, a friend that knew my work uh, was the general manager of the Grand Floridian Hotel, and then everything just took off from there. Uh, uh, moved down there and established a, a nice fourteen year career with with Disney. So you went to Disney World. Exactly. <laughs> I kind of feel like, John Blazin, you've just passed the MS. What are you doing next? You went to Disney World. Disney was great for, uh, at that time, and, and still is today, for showing us uh, a great dining experience. And, you know, we, I was working with some very talented leaders that saw the opportunity to bring wine forward. And in doing that, they charged me with, uh, with how do we raise the level? So we started an education program, and I got connected with Fred Dame and the Quartermaster Sommeliers. And uh, next thing you know, uh, I'm uh, bringing them in to teach courses and and I'm learning along the way to the point at which when it came time, I was able to be proctored and uh, go through the exams until its fruition. It was a great run. You have really become quite the star. I'm reading a little bit off of your bio, but in 2003, you were applauded by the National Restaurant Association, uh, the Educational Foundation, as America's Best Wine List Special Innovation Honor for your work at Walt Disney. And then also 2003, Wine Professional of the Year. Uh, and it goes on and on and on. In 2006, you were recognized by Star Wine International Wine Competition as their Sommelier of the Year in 08 and in uh, 13. You were elected to serve a two-year term on the Board of Quartermaster Sommeliers. This is a pretty rarefied air, John. You know, it, um, it's, it's been a great run. Uh, I still enjoy what I do. I've met some great people along the way, and uh, you know it's nice to be recognized. Uh, uh, I think everybody should work hard at what they do, and uh, recognition always helps. Well, I got to tell you. So, from a personal standpoint, I want to thank you very much for the work that you've done with Disney. Because one of the top ten wine dinner experiences I've ever had in my life was actually at Twenty One Royal in Disneyland in Anaheim, California. For those of you who don't know, Twenty One Royal is kind of a, I guess, kind of a private club inside Disneyland. Mm -hmm. The wine list there that was talk about fantasy land. <laughs> yeah. quite well, I'll give, I'll give credit to uh, Disneyland folks over there, uh, separate from Disney World, all one company, but they have great talent. And I worked alongside a good friend, Michael Jordan, who was uh, close to raising, well, he did raise the bar for Disneyland for many years at Napa Rose and they're on. Yeah, absolutely. We work together right now for Jackson family. So it's, uh, we continue. I had the pleasure of meeting Michael at Napa Rose many years ago. Then I understand he mm -hmm. went down to Newport Beach, uh, I thought, for a while um, and was down there. I didn't realize he was back with Jackson family. Yeah, yeah. We've got a few uh, master sommeliers with us. Fantastic. So let's talk about Jackson family and your role with them. When did, uh, when did you head over to Jackson family? Well, uh, let's see. I, I would say the year was 2010. 
you know, I, I was uh, brought in to run um, the Spire collection. Uh, at the, and, and at this time, it is a luxury artisan portfolio. But we were we were going navigating through some you know economical uh, ups and downs, and, and uh, that project uh, got uh, a little bit uh, stalled. But when it uh, emerged, uh, we had a uh, hundred point scores uh, <laughs> thanks to Pierre Seon with Verite. And Barbara uh, uh, Mackey uh, saw the opportunity to really prompt uh, Spire Collection to where it is today, a full-blown uh, luxury division. And uh, so I, I, uh, I act as somewhat of their uh, winery ambassador education and would <laughs> go around the country and, and do a lot of events and uh, speak to these beautiful wines in our portfolio. But now all of that seems to be uncertain. And, uh, you know, the new, new travel is the new Zoom and the new platform. So we'll see where that takes us. And here we are. So <laughs> people think of Jackson family as, you know, you know the, the typical, uh, I guess, turning leaf, if you will, or the, you know, the Jackson family wines are not really associated or have not in the past been associated with the, the luxury brands that we now see the Jackson family estates involved with. Can you kind of walk me through a little bit what the Spire Collection is? It's really probably Jess and Barbara always had this uh, long-term vision. And, and you're talking about Jess Jackson. and Yes, Jess Jackson and Barbara Banky, long-term vision and the family, of course, today, all involved uh, of creating a world-class wine company. And this is a family-owned company with high values for sustainability. It all started in 1982 with the first vintage of Kendall Jackson Vintners Reserve. And subsequently, you know, Jess and Barbara continued to take the, the, the earnings from a very successful launch and product and reinvest into the land and into the properties and developing these incredible brands like Cambria, and so on and so forth. And we're, we're up to 55, 57 world-class wineries right now. And amongst those 57, you know, they are spread out around the world, um, not just based in California, but uh, handsomely in, in Oregon, in Willamette Valley. We have some amazing property up there, five or so wineries. We have property in a brand in South Africa, uh, two in Australia, one in Bordeaux, one in Tuscany in Italy. And, um, you know, we're, we're specialists for crafting estate-grown fruit on hillsides, benchland, and mountains. And so our winemakers are given incredible resources to work with and tools. And Jess said, go out and make the best wine you possibly can. And let me know what you do, what you do need to, to do that. You know, the scores speak for themselves. You can say what you want about scores, but I don't know another company that has the success in the plethora of high 90-point-plus rated wines across the scope. And the wines are delicious. Absolutely. <laughs> they are. And for those of you, by the way, who are listening to this and may be going, you know, thinking that John is touting some party line, I can tell you from personal experience, I have spoken to many of the winemakers in the uh, Jackson family, family of winemakers, and they all say the same thing, that the Jackson family wants them to make quality wines 
and are pretty much completely hands-off and let the winemakers do what they do best. And I have to say, I am very impressed with a lot of the wines coming out of that portfolio. You know, for me, my, my job is just not to try to get in the way. Pop the cork, pour in the glass, tell the story, and let the wine speak for itself. And what Jess wanted was to have uh, some specialists tell the story uh, about these mountain wines, about the wines from Chris Carpenter and How Mountain, Vita, and Spring, and have the wines told of the story of Pierre Sayon in, in Sonoma. And that's how the Spire Collection was put together. So we have, we have added brands uh, over the years. They're just world-class, and they stand on their own. As we know the success of Kendall Jackson and, and other volumetric positions of wines, we wanted the Spire Collection set of wines to be hand-carried into the top restaurants, into the most eclectic retailers, and into the collective community that they would you know, see that there's something really special here that they need to be part of. Speaking of special, you had mentioned that the Jackson family, actually, the Spire Collection has a property in Tuscany. Yes. We've, we've I, got, I wasn't aware of that one. Amazing property called uh, Tenuta Diacena. And we make uh, six wines amongst two classifications. Uh, it's located in a little town known as Castel Nuevo Bardenga which is about, uh, you know, 12 miles from Siena, 31 miles southeast of Florence. And it's just an amazing property that uh, Justin Barber found in 1994. The history of the estate goes way back to this documents recording that during the Etruscan period, 1000 AD, there were actually documents showing winemaking taking place on that estate. It's 2,500 acres sprawled. There are about 220 of those acres planted to vine and 100 acres planted to olive trees. And through the years have been, you know, families that was the Deltaja family in 1504, the Lamini family in 1829, and they all contributed to that property, that, which still remains unspoiled, untouched, and uh, just representing the Etruscan authenticity of that area. It's in a little small town known as San Guzme, which is relatively 14th century. Go figure, have about 50 inhabitants and two churches. And this, this town, San Guzme, sits on, on top of the hill overlooking these beautiful uh, vineyards. And we make some amazing Sangiovese and amazing Bordeaux varieties, Super Tuscan style. Two winemakers, uh, one destination, just to make the best that the property can make. So for those people who don't know really what a Super Tuscan is, that's, those are wines that are using Bordeaux, traditional Bordeaux varieties? Uh, typically, yes. Uh, Super Tuscans uh, fall into the Encazione Geographica Tipici, the IGT designation, uh, which was established as an opportunity to give winemakers more flexibility to make the best wines possible outside of the DOC, DOCG laws. And so therefore, more varieties are commonly uh, used as those particular uh, qualifiers for Super Tuscan and can be mixed with indigenous grape varieties as well. Such as Sangiovese, which exactly. you typically associate with Chianti. Now, speaking of Sangiovese and the DOCG, I've been there several times to Tuscany, uh, and in particularly to 
Chianti Classico and now and I Chianti Classico Reserva. But I understand there's a third designation that I was not aware of. Yeah, recently, 2015, uh, the establishment in the Chianti Classico established a single vineyard labeling called Grand Selezione, which uh, the qualifier for that would be that it had to uh, come from a single vineyard source and have a certain percentage of time of aging. But it would represent the best of the best of, of that estate. And we have a wine called Strada Alsasso, which uh, is a Grand Selecione. And these are the best blocks that grow the finest Sangiovese and Galestra soils. Absolutely amazing wine, stunning wine. Strada uh, also means Stone Street, which uh, to uh, just Stone Street, Jackson. Excellent. Yeah, because of, of the Stone Street brand in the, mm-hmm. the Jackson family as well. That's a great play. What role is Pierre Seance playing these days with the, this particular estate? Well, Pierre is, um, he, he could be labeled as a traveling winemaker up until this time where no one started. <laughs> Pierre's very busy. He's a very hardworking gentleman. He's passionate. He's cut his teeth in Gascon. He comes from a family of Armagnac makers, and he's been making wine. He's had over 50 vintages in his, in his background. Many of his years were spent in Bordeaux. Really fell in love with the Cabernet Franc grape when he spent some time in the Loire Valley, in Chinon, in Bougui. And his love for the Bordeaux varieties uh, caught the eye of Jess Jackson. They met right around the same time of 94. And Jess was really took to Pierre with his passion and uh, his understanding of grape growing and his micro-crew philosophy that he's endured with all of his projects. And he asked him to come to Italy. And after, you know, this, this particular property that was acquired in 1994, you know, satisfies 12 years after the, the first vintage of Kendall Jackson, this vision of becoming a world-class wine company. And at, at that time, there was a couple of prominent Tuscan wine companies that were eyeing this piece of property. Not, and they knew what the full potential was. And then when, when Jess was there at the right time to scoop up the property uh, and he brought Pierre over and he wanted to get his opinion on what do you think this place could do? And Pierre saw it as obviously great Sangiovese plantings, but he also recognized that because of his position in the uh, Colosinensi, which is the largest of the Chianti uh, zones, that it was slightly warmer there than, say, the areas in the Chianti Classico hills where Greve and Rada would be located. Mm-hmm. Because of the, the meso and microclimate pockets on that particular estate, he saw the potential for planting water varieties. And they had the right soils, had the clay and the cholesterol for the Merlot, it had the alluvial uh, mix for the Cabernet Franc and the Cabernet Sauvignon. So, you know, his, he met up with uh, a gentleman who really uh, deserves a lot of credit, Michele Bezzacote, who is the, really the caretaker of the property. And, and he knows where every grapevine is, is planted and could tell you the history. Together, he and, and Pierre uh, mapped out uh, these micro-crews and uh, the property back in 1995. And, and design the architecture and plantings of that particular property. So 
the rest is really uh, uh, upon us right now, how these wines have really been uh, revered and, and received into the marketplace. Um, I had no idea that the history of that particular property within the portfolio went back that far. That's incredible because, you know, Pierre, as you said, a remarkable winemaker, really very well known for his projects in Sonoma and the scores that he's been receiving there. 100 points back to back, pretty impressive for that project. But I had no idea that he was bringing that into Italy and working, um, you know, doing these super Tuscans as well as the traditional Chiantis. The Chianti program is overseen by a great guy, Lawrence Cronin. He arrived on the scene in 2002. Uh, Lawrence has family in Sicily and he was, uh, you know, raised in New York and New Jersey and he's worked around the world in winemaking stints in Australia, Chile, New Zealand. And he was brought over by Jess to, in 2002 to work with Pierre uh, but to really oversee the San Giovese program, which has really taken off. And so um, he oversees all of the uh, Chianti uh, Classico and the Grand Selezione uh, with the Tenuta Aceno. And then he works uh, in collaboration uh, with Pierre's direction for, you know, the uh, élevage of the Acanum wines that uh, Pierre makes. So it's a great partnership. Wow. You know, and it's, and you mentioned San Giovese. I always think of Chianti as a super great wine to have with a, you know, home cooked comfort meal, you know, pasta. And then the way back days, you know, you kind of still associate it with those wicker bottle, you know, the wicker covered bottles with the candles in it with the old Italian restaurants. But it's come such a long way in America. And we've become so accustomed to having Italian cuisine with Chiantis. And, and I'm curious, why is that? Is it the, the higher acid that we associate with Chianti? What makes it for us just such a great food pairing? That's a great question. And, you know, it's probably, the answer is probably more simplified than, than the science behind it. You know, we all know the adage, uh, what grows together goes together. It, that, there's no better place than I think in Italy. And I'm talking about the entire country of what uh, how the grapes, uh, the indigenous grapes, uh, work alongside uh, the local foodstuffs that are grown and harvested. And certainly, you know, uh, Sangiovese uh, is just one of those grapes that not quite as fickle, say, perhaps as uh, Pinot Noir, but it is rather thin-skinned, and it has all of this great aroma and fragrance to it. The red fruits. Uh, you know, can dance along this electric tension of just uh, amazing refreshment uh, based on, of course, how the vintage uh, portrays the, uh, the ripening. And because of that naturally high acidity and the galestra soils, which permit perhaps an expression of minerality, that, that this wine, especially the Achena wine, just goes beautifully balanced with uh, anything from that area. You know, the uh, a lot of the, I know I'm not, Educating our listeners, everybody knows that, you know, the Napoli, the, the tomato is based down in the south and, and, and Avellino and Naples. And, and when we get up in, into Tuscany, it's a little bit more earthier, a little bit more of the cingale, the pork. Uh, the, the, we still have the tomatoes, but we have the brown sauces as well kind of mixed together. And uh, 
here in us in Baradenga, the the Sangiovese gets to be a little bit fuller, a little bit more full-bodied than, say, perhaps the piercing acidity in around Reda and Greve. So, you know, in, and during this COVID period, Italian wine sales have just gone through the roof. Retail. Really? I think there's, you know, there's a lot of home cooking. The people are enjoying the flavors that they feel, make them feel comfortable and don't overcomplicate it. And they're looking for the, the wines that go with that. I mean, I, myself here at home, I'm, I'm guilty of the fact that I wish I had more Italian wine to work with. I mean, I, I collect a fair amount of Bordeaux and California Cab. And I'll never forget the time when I was cooking for my, my wife. And, and she says, I'm looking forward to your dish. Can you pull out a bottle of wine? And I didn't have anything Sangiovese based. And I said, I'm sorry, and I don't have anything. She says, you mean to tell me all of that wine is not one bottle that can go with <laughs> I got in the car and I went to the local real t- retail shop to get myself a nice bottle of Chianti. <laughs> well, I have to say, I'm just as guilty as charged. We have been doing a lot of cooking during uh, these last several months, uh, making our own pastas, making our own pasta sauces. I have to tell you, John, that I actually do have quite a bit of Chianti Classico and Chianti Classico Reserva on hand here. So I'm smart. Fortunate. Well, it's also one of the first wines I ever cut my teeth on. You know, along with uh, Southern Rhone wines and even Southern Australian wines, but I have always had a love of Sangiovese. That was one of the first wines I fell in love with. So I'm try to keep a good supply on hand. You know, if, if there's one particular grape variety that I can probably satiate a, a wide range of affinity with food, you'd have to put Sangiovese there because it has the role of being that acid player as well as if it's got some aging on it, it can step into the, yeah. the protein arena as well on a full body uh, basis. So a lot of versatility. I, I agree. I, I think that Sangiovese is one of the most versatile wines uh, around. So I'm very fortunate. Now, by the way, I, I noticed that this property has been receiving a lot of acclaim these days. I'm doing some research, I noticed the 2017 Chianti has a, and I'm going to try to say this correctly, a play. Bicieri classification? Yes, yes, we're very proud. Um, it's not our first one, it's our second one, but the, the 2017 Trinidad Chino Chianti Classico received the Tre Bicieri from uh, uh, Gambero Rosso. This is a, an award that's given every year. Some esteemed blind tasters will judge in accordance to a one, two, or three award. Uh, and they call it the Bicchieri glass. And if you get the, the three glasses, then you are certainly at the top of the realm. And uh, it's not easy to acquire. Uh, this is one of the few uh, Chianti Classicos, if not the only one that I'm aware of, that received in the 2017 miniature Trey Bicchieri. So, I mean, in, in this country, we know a lot of sommeliers and wine buyers and, and retailers. Uh, again, not to get into the whole point thing, but that, that's a very coveted distinction. And when you look at the value of this wine and its price point with all of that attention, in 2017 being somewhat of a dry vintage, but very generous in its ripe profile, everything really comes together with this wine. We also received a Trey Bicchieri for the uh, 2013 Valadona, which is our Merlot-based wine that Pierre makes off the property. So not easy to acquire, not easy to attain, but we're proud of these uh, 
this shows that uh, we're moving in the right direction. So is the 2017 available in the marketplace? Because uh, it sounds yes. like I want to run out yes. and get. It's, uh, it's now becoming widely available. Most, if not all, markets were distributed. Well, congratulations on that prestigious uh, recognition. I think it's great. Okay. Well, that's hats off to Lawrence Cronin uh, uh, and everything he does with his team and Michaela as well. That's, that's quite an achievement. Well, John, now it's my favorite time in the podcast where we actually get to find out what's in your glass. So with that. Well, you know, I, I, it's, it's, it couldn't have been better planted there, uh, Scott. Uh, I actually have a glass of the uh, <laughs> 17 Trepicchiere here. And, you know, I like to put a slight chill on it uh, because I really like Pinot sometimes. I like to have it. I like to see that acidity pop a little bit. But it has beautiful color. It's got a nice uh, dark ruby sheen to it. Very fragrant. I've got these these strawberries and, and wild raspberries that are dancing amongst this mineral core. Uh, this is 85% Sangiovese, 15% Merlot. It sees 10 months of oak, but don't let that fool you. That oak is not new. That oak is second or third passage. It's just kind of a frame to uh, to the wine. And it has a lot of character. It has a lot of length to it. It's amazing how refreshing this particular wine is. It has some, a little bit of a, somewhat of a, a tension to it. It has a vibrancy and a richness that uh, you take a sip and then it says, thank you, can I have another? <laughs> and it, it invites you to have some great food with it at the same time. So, wow. I don't know if, if I'm making you jealous or not, but um, I didn't spit that in. If you noticed, I just uh, went right through that. So traditionally, we're doing this across from each other in the studio, and I'm able to be sampling these wines with you. Of course, you have the luxury of sampling it and explaining these wines to our listeners. And yes, I am jealous. What, what would you like if you could pick anything to pair it with? What would you choose to have with this wine right now? You know, I, we mentioned versatility. Um, I think if I was going to make a homemade Bolognese, I, I'd have to have this on my short list. Uh, you know, a little, little pork, a little, uh, a little beef, and, and the vegetables, obviously the garlic, and, uh, and just let that cook down and seep and, and, and get some time blending those flavors together. You've got to have some great pecorino to go with it, and then some if you can get some fresh pasta, to me, that's a home run. And you know what? Not to throw it. I mean, any kind of pizza. Yeah, I was going to say, how about pizza? I mean, let's face it. This wine is versatile. Uh, it's friendly. Don't overthink it. But if you want it to have a steak or if you want to have a piece of salmon or a nice uh, chicken dish with some mushrooms, I mean, I would use this as I might think about using a fine burgundy. They're, they're apples and oranges, obviously, but uh, there's a fair amount of... Uh, range that this wine can carry. So John, I'm going to ask you to, to open one more bottle and tell Yeah, yeah I, had, I have one, one, one other glass here. It's the, uh, uh, this is the Ilfano uh, Diaconum 2016. Now this is Pierre uh, showing what the property can do in all of its majesty with those Bordeaux varieties. Here we've got this amazing blend of 51% Merlot, 31% uh, Cabernet Franc, 17% Cabernet Sauvignon, and a little bit of Colorino, though we call Petit Verdot. And this represents some of the best blocks on the property 
where the grapes are grown and then put together in this amazing assemblage. This is our Super Tuscan at its finest uh, and at an amazing, amazing price point. It, it's full bodied. Uh, it's got all those dark cherry notes. It's got some plum. Uh, you can get the savoriness of the, the spices, the herbs, the kind of portray the Tuscan landscape. You killed me. This wine is, is, is Italian. You put your nose, it somewhat has a little bit of a Bordelais effect to it. You know, maybe that's the craft that Pierre and, uh, puts together. But um, again, we're not talking about any new oak here. It's just about the, f- the brightness of the fruit. It's just so rich. 2016, a classic vintage, one of the best vintages of record. And this wine can age. It's about $35 retail. When you think about what's out there uh, in that category, uh, this one is well worth discovering. It's You're not going to be shy with the amount of fruit that's packed into that glass. It's just got so much length and layers of beautiful red and black fruit. And again, what would you pair this with? Well, here I'm not going to hesitate. Uh, you know, I, I'd go with a full-fledged uh, bistec, uh, a Florentine steak. Or I'd have a maybe uh, some pork with this. And, you know, I wouldn't say I wouldn't have pasta with it. I, I would definitely have a bolognese with this as well. I could cross over. But there's so much here that I'd, I'd probably give this a little bit of a decant uh, to open it up. You know, wider range, uh, but you're definitely getting into the, the proteins, the richer uh, flavors, something with some marbling. So you could have that. The, t- the, the tannins here are well integrated. It's a youthful wine, but it shows tremendous uh, approachability at this, at this stage. Well, you had me at Florentine Steak. <laughs> One of the classics. Well, John, thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast. I know that this has been kind of an unusual way to do this. I just genuinely appreciate you taking the time to be with me in the virtual studio today. Well, Scott, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for, uh, for the invitation. And uh, who knows, this might be the, the way we do things for at least the short term. And uh, if we have more wines to share. We'll make sure we, uh, we, if we can't get together soon, we'll make sure we send some to you and we get, we'll have comparison uh, tastings. That would be great. We could do a virtual tasting, but in the meantime, again, thank you so much. And I do hope that this is really the short term. I would love to sit down a- across the table from you sometime and really enjoy a glass face to face. That would be great. I'd, I'd look forward to that. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. This episode was produced by Sarah Beth Hensley. The music you heard is Wishful Thinking by Dan Liebowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and listen to my WTOP news podcast every Friday on WTOP and WTOP.com. Until the next time, remember, do good, drink well.